Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. So our sponsor is Joe Shrimp Shack, but Joe himself is going to be going on a expose to all these different aquarium expos for the next couple months, and he needs to lower down stock. So what he's done is now he has a 50% off sale for those that want to purchase shrimp in store. So if you're in the metro of Minnesota, go check out Joe Shrimp Shack for 50% off anything he has left in stock. And for those that cannot make it to the metro of Minnesota, we still have 10% off anything you'd like to purchase from joeshrimpshack.com using promo code AquariumGuys at checkout. Fantastic. So where's he going? Is he just going to go tour the world, or what's he doing? So you can certainly no, check out his... I know he's going to Florida. So you can check out his Facebook page. I think the first stop is Florida, but he's going to be at Dallas Aquashella. He's got a long roster of places he's going to be uh, hitting up. And Is he is hitting the... every place that's above, above zero because it's like negative zero here? Well, not necessarily, because he's going to be at the Aquarium Expo in Minneapolis with us March 21st. And I'm pretty oh. sure it won't be much warmer than it is right now. No, it'll be quite cold. <laughs> it always is. We don't care about March in Minnesota. It's just part of winter. Kick the podcast. Welcome to the Aquarium Guys podcast with your hosts, Jim Colby and Rob Zolson. Welcome, everybody, to the Aquarium Hello. Guys podcast. Hello. Well, hi, Adam. To kick things off, let's do some introductions. I'm Rob Zolson. I'm Jim Colby. And I'm Adam Elnashire. So for today's podcast, I'm super excited to introduce Scott from, is it Project Piaba? Is that how you pronounce it? We've been pronouncing it all different ways. Piaba. Piaba. Excellent. That's it. Yeah. So thanks so much again, Scott, for joining us on the podcast. We we're happy to have you. And you're the president or executive of this? Yeah, executive director. Fantastic. We're going to do a deep dive on this charity, but first we got to do some house cleaning. You're back now from vacation, both of you, and uh, thanks for leaving me all alone for last podcast. That, that's fine. I, I didn't mind it at all. I panicked. I uh, tried to find the pre-recordings. I only found one of the two recordings that we have. One is still missing somewhere. I think it's on the computer I gave you at your house. It's probably downstairs in my basement. We uh, we always try to keep a couple in the can just in case that we are uh, gone. Uh, my wife and I were on vacation last week. Trying to get the coronavirus. Trying to get the coronavirus. You probably I, got it. I hope so. And, um, you know, because that's a gift that keeps on giving. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, it, it was, uh, to be honest with you, it was scary a little bit. You, you, we pulled into the uh, O'Hare. Is it O'Hare Airport in Chicago? It is. And uh, see about a thousand different people wearing a face mask and whatnot. And I don't think any of them were surgeons, honestly. Uh, we sat there for about four or five hours on a layover. And uh, I think the first picture I sent to Rob was uh, people sitting behind me with a face mask on. So, and you with none. And me with none, yeah, because I'm, I'm a dum-dum. They wouldn't serve you Corona on the, the flight, would they? You know, not on the, the flight, but on, on the cruise, I saw a whole lot of Corona going down and a whole lot of Corona jokes going down also. And that also came from the stage, from all the performers and whatnot. So I imagine we're all going to go to heck in a handbasket. So. so this week I've been listening to another podcast, one of my favorites. Uh, it's just a comedy podcast called Middle of Somewhere. It has a uh, couple of comedians on there, and they're talking. They're also in Minnesota, and they're talking about how all the locals, like the you know dim-witted locals, are trying to get Lyme's disease with for their coronavirus, so they can make sure of Lyme with their corona. Oh, that's <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> we were. Uh, it's happening now. Yeah, we were on the cruise, and the first comedian that we met uh, was Izzy. Where is he from? Saint Cloud, Minnesota. I think there's going to be so many more stories we're going to hear from you. But before we do that, we just got to give a moment. Now, normally we have our. Uh, 
charity spotlight, but I just want to give more time to that. Just to give you guys an update, Ohio Fish Rescue is a fantastic organization that they dedicated to three people. It's Josh, Big Rich, and Tracy, and Tracy has been in the hospital for an issue where she got sick, had internal bleeding, and has been in a coma now for a while. And if you guys want to keep up to it, certainly go on their Facebook page for Ohio Fish Rescue. Tracy is... Every day seeming to improve in small baby steps, but there's still a risk that, uh, you know, it's a coma that they may never come out of it. So certainly please pray for that family. And if you want to consider donating, in our show notes, we have a GoFundMe that we started up from our community having requests. Thank you to, number one, our community and everyone else that's participated. We have raised now over $5,500 on that GoFundMe. That is fantastic. I uh, I was on vacation when, when all this went down. Rob kept me updated and stuff. And, and, and thanks to Rob. And one of our listeners, Sonny, for putting this all together. From the bottom of my heart, um, you know, all of our thoughts and prayers go with with Big Rich, Josh, Tracy, especially. Uh, they're going through a tough time. And if you can afford five bucks, ten bucks, twenty bucks, whatever you can do, um, just go to our uh, the GoFundMe page. The link's on the bottom of our our website, and uh, give anything you can. And I'm seeing a lot of people are just going anonymously. Um, that's fantastic. If you don't want your name on there, that's okay too. Um, Rob's and I and Adam all threw some money in there, and we were just so. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm, beside I'm, ourselves. I'm just, yeah, I'm so, so beside myself. On the community coming together, I, I've had some friends looking in and just seeing some of my posts just that aren't having to do with the fish, and they're like, "What is this all about?" I was like, "Oh, we're just fish keepers." That is such a great community you guys have to take care of your own in such a, a big way that just doesn't happen in other places. So. And, and and our community is a pretty young community. We've only been doing this since September, and so this just totally blew me away. I think we started with a $2,000 goal. I think that's what Rob and Sonny started with. Blew past that like uh, a ton of bricks. And uh, now we're up to like $5,500, like Rob said. We're recording this on a Monday night. So by the time you hear this on Thursday, hopefully we're above 6000 7000 Everything in time. It's going fast. But again, that's a drop in the bucket for the insurance cost. You know, North America insurance cost is terrible. You know, Big Rich is self-employed. So getting insurance is quite a, quite a struggle. So being in the hospital for two weeks or who knows how much more she's going to be in there. It's just not going to be a cheap ordeal. So as much as we've done, we always can do more and certainly uh, do that. And everything that you post on their Facebook page or the GoFundMe gets read directly to Tracy from, from Rich. He takes every one of those very personal and he, uh, he, he, he loves your comments even if you can't give a dollar. Yep, that's fantastic. You know, if, if, if you can't give a dollar, you can't give $5, you know, a, a prayer... Uh, send them an angel. Anything you can do to help uh, to help our community. Uh, we want Tracy to heal. We want uh, to be all one big happy family again. So thanks again, everybody. Now, a couple more reminders. We're going to be at the Minneapolis Aquarium Expo March 21st in person, in the flesh. And Adam just gave us the news that he's going to be there as well. Yeah, I took time off one of my three jobs. So <laughs> One of your three jobs. So Adam's an exotic dancer at three different clubs. He is. And... <laughs> And that's that's why he, that's know, why he's poor is because yeah. it's not working out for him. <laughs> that that and the five kids, yeah, <laughs> that could be part of it. I only have four. Yeah, she hasn't told you the news, has she? It's the rice belly. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> nah, you just have four that we know of. Well, come see us, guys. We're going to be there in person. We want to hang out, and above all else, you know, we need a group of people to uh, harass Joe with. We can't be alone <laughs> to harass Joe, so be there with us. We'll be there, and, and uh, if anybody would like to go on the podcast live, uh, and you've got some interesting stories or some, uh, there's some... a potential there that we'll get the microphones out and do something. But yeah, you never know. Worst case scenario, we're th- we're just there. We're just know? there. We're there to have fun. And maybe we're just eating at the buffet. Is you there, never know. Is there a buffet? You there is me. now. There's a buffet. I hope so. There better be a. Buffet. That's how Rob told me. I was. So Dan Rowe, if you're listening to this, make sure there's a buffet there. We're hungry people. <laughs> 
All right. So the last piece that we have, uh, one of the last pieces, is a email, Jim. Now, <clears throat> I think I should read this to you. <laughs> We're going to leave this gentleman's name uh, out. I thought it was hilarious. his own disclosure. And let me put it this way. Good or bad, we love hearing your feedback, right? That's right. This is what we could classify as our first quote-unquote bad review, unless you listen to you know other streamers out there that don't want to come on our podcast, cough, cough. But uh, this is our first real uh, bit of you know what we could con- could consider negative feedback. But it everything was. in my mind is positive. If you care about our podcast and you want to write to us, it's not it's not bad feedback. So let's start this. Hi, I'm 55 years old. I am from Jim's generation. Uh, that, excuse me, that's 65 years old. He got that wrong already. <laughs> I am not 65 <laughs> years old. I'll kill you both. He is not a representative of our people. He makes it sound like everyone our age is tech ignorant. It's not our fault if Jim grew up in a log cabin in the woods. Wow, that hurt. (laughs) I know many guys our age are savvy as Brandon, who's on your last podcast, who built themselves their own Leviathan-like systems for themselves. Do not let Jim be our spokesperson. Wow, there there goes that money I was going to make. So uh, before we go, that's the first... There's two paragraphs here. That's the first paragraph. Uh, number one, let's go back to that uh, podcast that we have Brandon on. He was there to present the Leviathan system where you can actually automate almost everything for your aquarium. Lights, heater, feedings, micronutrients, water flow, everything. Very interesting. Very In the cool. podcast, we try to riff back and forth. We try to look at every angle possible. We try to do devil's advocate. We try to be excited for the product. And Jim was simply playing the part that day. Jim, you know, as he may not be as bright as everybody else, depending That's correct. on the day, he is tech savvy. He was just playing the role that time to show a audience of aquarists that do not like to use any tech whatsoever on their aquarium. And there's a lot of people out there that don't. And most of them, to be honest, are like 35. Right. I get, That'd be me. <laughs> I get a ton of people that don't like doing it. But no, Jim is quite tech savvy. He sets up his own Amazon Alexa devices. He has Waze camera system just used for his fish. He is definitely above average for the Aquarius. But, you know, thank you for being our beating stick that day. That's fine. I, I can take a punch in the throat any day. But we need to be serious about this. Clearly, this gentleman is uh, angry because you're the representation of his generation on our podcast. And I we am. need to be wary of that. He should have saw me at the cruise. Yeah, clearly, yeah. eight Coronas in your hand, drunk out of your <laughs> mind, totally representing your generation. Ex- exactly, yeah. And I was only one standing, so. Right. But no, for, uh, to be serious... We're not intending to have anybody represent any type of generational gap. We've had, in fact, the majority of our guests have been middle age experts in their field. You know, with in in this day and age, what we're trying to do is bring in younger listeners. Because let's face it, all of our people that we love and adore who have been around the industry, such as Jack Watley, just passed away. So we want to invite younger people to be in this love fest that we have here called the, the Aquarium Hobby, you know. Don't take it real serious. We're not scientists. So to sum it up, (laughs) you're a snowflake, Jim, and buck up. Hey, I don't care. (laughs) All right, next podcast. If Jim wants uh, something a bit more simple than the Leviathan, he can buy a smart plug that communicates with his smartphone, and he can schedule turn on and off with his smartphone. A bit more effort if you want to connect smart plugs, Google Home or Alexa, to turn the aquarium lights on and off via voice command. It's not as elaborate as the Leviathan, but simple enough that even Jim could do it. I know. That Jim is already doing it, but again, this really shows us that we mean a lot to you. Jim did not understand that he would have any fan out there that uh, <laughs> he could possibly represent. No. We, we're we going to take that to heart. I'm going to be nicer to you, Jim. Don't. You know, if we're playing a role, we're, we're, we'll try to announce it. You know, the uh, the thing about this podcast is that we don't take ourselves seriously, and if, if you're taking us seriously, great. 
I wouldn't. We're here to educate what little we know, what, uh, because I'm old, I'm 55, I don't know nothing. And so I'm just here to help you out. I, I want to tell you that things I can run, uh, I could run the blow dryer in the bathroom when you put your hands under it. <laughs> When I was on the ship, you put your hands underneath the water and you wave it, water comes right out. Pretty cool. You can do better than that. But, again, thanks for that. Uh, Any feedback like that is positive. That means you care. So I appreciate it, mysterious man that I can't talk about on air. That's right. Right. The only thing we take seriously in this podcast is the topics at hand and, and our fish hobby. That's right. We want to take care of this fish hobby. We're going to take it to another level. Everything else is free game. That's right. So I think that kind of does it, other than I have to tell one story quickly before we get into this. I know we're going a, little, a bit uh, a bit long here, but uh, Jim, I'm embarrassed. Oh, you should be embarrassed because that haircut sucks. Well, number one, it's been a long time since you've seen me, but no, I'm embarrassed <laughs> because on my way home, we generally try to do these podcasts Monday nights. We'll try to accommodate some other schedules if we see a guest isn't able to accommodate but i get off literally 30 minutes before this podcast begins i drive home and i'm trying to just keep the you know research notes that i've done on our guest or the topic at hand in in my brain i've been researching all these things you can do to improve a podcast what professionals do for podcasts because i want to be a big boy too and they always say do voice exercises what better voice exercises than singing along in the car so generally, I try to find a new song Please in the don't. last 10 minutes Please on my don't. trip home, and I think I have scared my neighbors. Yeah, d- don't do not do that. So I'm a six foot two man. I'm, I'm not a small man by any measure, and I drive a tiny smart car in the middle of Minnesota. So imagine me with a smart car, stripe pipe exhaust, mind you. So brrr, And imagine the guy that rolled down his window two blocks ahead of time, yelling to the top of his lungs, asking Alexandria, right? And it was like a ballad. It wasn't their normal stuff. My neighbor that I did not see was standing on the curb where the snow is, taking her dog out, and me just bellering hellbent for election, singing as I get home to pick up the mail. I back up just to see her, and she's doing like one of these, like slow clap applauses. <laughs> You know what I mean? So uh, I need to update my routine, but my voice is in shape for this podcast. You're in shape. I'm a little rusty. I, I did a whole lot of hollering and hooting and singing along uh, on our cruise. We were gone for five days. We saw maybe about 22, 23 bands, I think. A whole lot of sing-alongs, a whole lot of uh, talking to friends and stuff. And so come back a little bit hoarse, but feeling pretty good. Did you see any fans that were on the ship? I did not see any fans on the <sighs> ship. Next year. Yeah, exactly. Next year. We'll get we'll get bigger that they'll infiltrate the monsters of rock. Cruise. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> Everything in time. All right. Well, let's dive into our actual topic here. Scott, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, buddy. Thank you very much for having me. So, Scott, I I don't know where to begin on this. Uh, number one, let's start with you. So, you work at the New England Aquarium. Is that correct? I do. Tell us more about that biologist there and I specialize in freshwater. I have always been into freshwater and I live not too far south of the New England Aquarium and that's the place where I would always ask uh, to go when a, a birthday came up or any excuse I could leverage. And then when I became a punk uh, teenager, I figured out how to uh, sneak on to the public transit system, jump on the, the subway, get myself into Boston. And I, I, I figured out how to fake the indication of, uh, of payment uh, to, that you paid for your admission and, I, and I'd sneak in and, and I'd just spend all day walking around hanging out at the aquarium and my parents were very patient and tolerant and uh, I was always hanging out at a pet store and changing water and cleaning box filters at uh, back at that day and at the end of the week the shop owner would give me a few fish and so 
my basement was a fish room and I kind of had it set up geographically, kind of how New England Aquarium was set up. And when I became old enough to become an official volunteer, I started volunteering to, at the expense of my, um, my college. I did, uh, I did poor in school. You could tell where my, my bandwidth was uh, allocated. In, let's see, 1987, I think I was a sophomore and an aquarist had left the aquarium. And by then I was sort of a fixture there, probably June or so. A department head said, we're in a pinch. We're really busy with other stuff. It, hiring somebody, recruiting and, and vetting a new aquarist takes a long time. Would you mind coming on staff for the summer while we get past this uh, busy period? And we promise you we'll work something out by September so you can uh, you can get back to school. But that summer ended up lasting about 20 years. Um, <laughs> they, they, they never got around to, to filling the position officially. So, yeah, um, let's see. I think during the economic crisis, I, I felt a little bit uh unstable well just in general but <laughs> academically unstable um without that college uh degree but um i i i talked my way into a master's program in scotland at a uh, university of sterling they have the the world's best aquaculture program so i took a year off from the aquarium got a master's in aquaculture came back Kind of parallel to that, we'll, we'll get into this. I really loved Amazonian fish. And um, in 1990, there were groups of hobbyists uh, going to Peru around that time. And I went on, a, on one of these Peru trips. It went a little bit rough. And I think I said out loud on the way out as we were sort of licking our wounds and hanging our heads. And I said, you know, it'd be great to go to Brazil sometime. And one of uh, the people on my trip said, hey, great. If you organize it, I'll, I'll go along. And so that was sort of a pivot point there. So that's kind of my background. Fish, fish are my life. That's fantastic. You have quite, you know, 20 years of a summer gig. I got to get one of those. I, I hope it wasn't, yeah. I hope it wasn't a yeah. volunteer gig. I hope you're getting paid there. No, I'm I, yeah, I was getting paid. It, it, it's a nonprofit, so not a whole lot, but, uh, but sure. They just, the system and, and off I, I went. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, um, <laughs> that's how I became a, a, a professional aquarist. That's incredible. People don't understand that if you're around there as a volunteer and stuff, it, it can do nothing but, but grow. It actually set you towards a career from what I understand. Yeah, I really recommend it for young folks that are into the hobby or thinking about a career in aquatics. Um, even if you found out, I, uh, you know, I don't like being wet all day and smelling like fish, then, then, then that's a valuable lesson. But it's a way to sort of network and put yourself in a, in a setting that you're, you're sort of gearing your, your life career for. And so if, if you can get involved in a public aquarium, either through an internship, through school or by volunteering, it's, it's time well spent. Now, do you guys have summer internships that, that you take people to, um, come work at the aquarium? We do. And, um, I'll tell you, uh, it's great. They're usually full of enthusiasm, and there are a lot of things that I'm responsible for that are that are time consuming, but a lot of them are a standard routine and things like that. I'll, I'll train interns up on, and then 
whatever time they can spend. Um, you know, it might be scrubbing algae off backgrounds and, and feeding flakes and pellets around and or maintaining some of the filters. That that kind of doubles my time. It doubles my day and it lets me get a lot more done. So we'll have, we usually build it around the academic year. We'll have summer interns, but then there'll be a quiet period in September that we all brace ourselves for because uh, Boston's a very academic city, just so many universities and stuff, but we kind of go a little bit high and dry for a lot of our helpers that we benefited so much uh, from through, through the summer. But then when the young folks get settled into school, we pick up another semester's worth of uh, internships. But there's a, there's a couple of different levels and descriptions folks can fit into. There are some people that are volunteers. They might be retired or they, they may have a free day a week. And I, I have some volunteers that have been with me for more than 10 years. They're just absolutely indispensable. Well, while we're on the subject, how can someone apply at the Boston Aquarium if they're going to uh, try to do for a summer volunteership? Where's the place they need to go? Well, uh, go on to the website, and we're volunteers and interns are so important to us. I, I haven't checked it lately, and they always keep the website really fresh, but I'm sure it's not too hard to navigate and find the volunteer slash intern department. I'm sure you can fill out an application online. It will ask you, you know, what amount of time do you have available, if it's specific days of the week. And there's a lot of, um, we have job descriptions. I am in charge of a gallery. That's the freshwater gallery, uh, South American and local fish. But we have North Atlantic, North Pacific galleries. We have other departments that work with some of the marine mammals and, and just, just all sorts of stuff where we take volunteers, volunteers and interns into. And you can read those job descriptions and find out what seems to click best. Some of them are more competitive than others. So you can either say that you you know you you just want fresh water, or you can say that you know you're you're open to wherever there's a need. And yeah, that's that's the way to to get into a situation like that. I will have the link in their show notes if you guys are interested. But before we get fan mail on this, I just want to point out that uh, this was years ago. And if you're looking to find a way to scam the Boston Transit system, <laughs> they have surely yeah. replaced the monetary <laughs> system to get a bus ticket. And then you used, right. to, used to sneak into the aquarium also. Yes, I did. And uh, I was very shy to, to share that. But one of the heads of our PR department really liked the story and he would tout it if I was uh, sort of getting involved with any media engagement. That's one of the things that he would give as my background that, you know, when I was a teenager, I, I was just so drawn to the place and, and you know, I, I didn't have any money. And, and so I figured out a way to, to sneak in the aquarium. Have, have you fixed that hole in the fence yet? Or is that still available for other people? <laughs> people to use i won't say <laughs> so is this the boston one yes the new england aquarium oh i think i no i i think that i went to the national one adam thinks he's stuck in that one maybe everything no time. no don't worry they have security out front now don't try to sneak in and keep illegal if you need uh, tickets just uh, you know hook up uh, for, call your your buddy scott up and see if he can hook you up right <laughs> yeah exactly we're giving so, away free tickets let, let's uh, yeah. get on track here for the uh, reason we brought you on because we can certainly talk a lot about the aquarium i was there for three hours when i visited but we want to talk to you about project piava and how did that get started let's start with the beginnings of that organization well like i said the the were certain sort of 
group of hobbyists that wanted to get out into the field and see the places where their fish came from. It's what a lot of us think about when we're setting up our aquarium and, and doing the aquascaping and figuring out community of fish and how to maintain our water chemistry and diet and all that. And the next step is to actually go there and see it all. In Peru had a structure, there was an outfitter that had some liverboard boats that had a program going. And I think there were two or three people in the U.S. that they would set up groups, go down to Peru. And the person I connected with was Dr. Paul Loisel. He's one of the leaders in, in the Lake Victoria Cichlid Conservation Program. He's been to Madagascar many times, and he's, he's doing a lot to promote um, conservation of cichlids in Madagascar. And he actually, he wrote the book, The Cichlid Aquarium, which was one of my, my, my Bibles when I was young. So it was quite an honor to spend a couple of weeks down in Peru with uh, Dr. Loisel. So Peru was having some problems. I think like the Shining Path uh, group of terrorists were cranky and the shining path yeah (laughs) shining path that was there the translation of the name of of them so they were making travel difficult and i forget there was some disease that was pretty prevalent how Um, long ago was this this was 1990 i was in peru then i used to live in peru yeah wow i lived in peru for like four or five years and 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 what group were you part of adam just (laughs) just, he was the dim light bulbs just curious (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, so this is actually kind of cool, but yeah, they would go and they'd kill everybody's cows and then they'd turn around and give them other cows. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't yeah. say this was actually kind of cool and then talk about slaughter. <laughs> well, no, no, no. It Phrasing, was kind of cool because like, you never knew when the they'd blow up the trans transistors all the time down there. They'd blow up like, the electrical power thing, so you'd go without power for like two, three days. It was kind of cool. What I'd like you, to what, apologize to our listeners. He's one of those guys that listens to mystery mur- murders all the time. <laughs> he thinks he's a Terminator or something. I don't know. <laughs> no, it was really fun down there, and I learned a lot. How to blow stuff up, apparently. No, I did not blow anything up. We lived right. in a gated community. You're kind of a terrorist anyway, just looking at you. So. <sighs> Jim, I'm going to fly soon. Will you quit saying that? <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's right. I forgot. You, you stopped at tipping the cows over. You didn't actually blow them up. <laughs> I like this guy. We got to keep him as a guest. <laughs> yeah. And they're delicious. Um, All right. So 1990, so, you get this yeah, charter. Yeah, that was great. I mean, the, the, the logistics were what they were, but I spent time snorkeling in the Amazon and looking at all of our dream fish. And I think I was maybe 20 or some 19, maybe just got a, a, a high from it. And I started calling contacts first at Harvard University and then at Smithsonian. And Smithsonian put me in touch with a professor at the University of Amazonas in Manaus, Brazil. Manaus is the, the big city where the Rio Negro meets the meets the Amazon. The, the guy was quite the character, Dr. Chow. He wasn't originally from Brazil, but he had taught in the U.S. and Canada, southern Brazil, and, and uh, he landed in the Amazon. And he was fish guy, he's, a, he's an ichthyologist, and he wanted to teach the local resident students about fish, but also mainly scientific methodology to give those students the tools, the proper way to ask a question and go about answering it. He had limited budget, and when I first wrote to him, he expressed a lot of concerns. Brazil had a lot tighter regulations in terms of accessing their biological material. In fact, um, Heiko Blair ended up in, in, in jail there, even though he, he grew up in Brazil and his, his folks had 
exported fish. What so, a time. Jack yeah. Wally also was a, had an arrest warrant out too. Yep. Yep. And, um, so that made me nervous in Peru. You, you would check your fish just like you were, you know, checking, checking a bag, but Brazil, it, it was a different story, but that didn't, that didn't stop us. We said, we'll go for it. And what I told him is I'll put together a group of enthusiastic slash crazy gringos that will cover the budget for chartering a boat and doing the variety of things that, that, that needed to be paid for. And we'll make sure to hold a handful of slots open on the boat for him and a, a group of students that he chose to bring along. You know, I, I think it was about four or five students. And so we flew into Manaus, we'd go to a, a riverboat. And early on in planning this trip, he said, we should go to the Rio Negro. The Rio Negro has uh, a lot more aquarium fish coming from there and it has a lot less mosquitoes. So let's go to the, the Rio Negro. I feel like this and- is the start of a really good, like scary movie. <laughs> it's like, I'm oh. thinking like Anaconda. What was that movie? No, yeah. I'm thinking Anaconda crossed with Deep Blue Sea. It's just going to happen. Yeah. We've we've had a lot of things. I've run this trip um, dozens of times now. I've kind of lost track. So it's 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 become a, a, an annual thing. But this was the the first one of of this expedition. I was by far the youngest, and I had organized this expedition to to the Brazilian Amazon, and it just fell short of organizing a trip to the moon in terms of, of difficulty. So how long were you planning when you were making this trip? You're like, um, if I'm packing, I'd be like, well, I'm going to be gone for a week. I only need one pair of underwear. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it came together, I think, shortly after I got home from Peru and had a, a bit of a bad taste in my mouth. And some that was insane. probably the cholera. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> probably <laughs> the cholera. That was a good yeah. one, Adam. It, it, it was the very next year. It was 1991 that we did this this first trip. There is a city, 450 kilometers, a couple of days if you go straight by boat. The city's called Barcelos. It's a it's a small city, about 40,000 people in the whole municipality, and it's a it's a hub of aquarium fish. There are some different stories. I was with Herb Axelrod once, and he told me his version of Barcelos coming what it refers to itself as the ornamental fish capital of the world and how Herb had gone upriver there in the 1960s, I think, uh, in search of another source of the neon tetra. How his story goes is that's when he made the discovery of the cardinal tetra, Paracaridon axelrodi. There's actually a process for describing and naming fish and it, it has to be published. And if you go through the old Tropical Fish Hobbyist magazines from that time, this the issue in which he published his description and his naming of the Cardinal Tetra is the only TFH magazine that has a, a an actual date on it. They were usually just monthly magazines. This particular one had a day on it, like June 12th. And the reason was he was racing against a scientist who was doing the proper description and publication. It was going to be the Vermilion Tetra, but Axelrod 
supposedly, well, I guess I could say he backdated the, his issue to come out to have the fish uh, named after him. So just <laughs> one, one of the little uh, tumultuous aspects of the, the story of, of the Cardinal Tetra. But since then... Um, I'm looking at my book right now because I have the uh, Handbook of Tropical Aquarium Fishes. That's what like, you said at, talking about Axelrod. My, like, is that him? I had to go over to my cabinet and grab the book right now. So I'm going to look and see if that actually has it in I, it while I've you're got talking. Several, I've got several Axelrod books. So do I. Oh, sure. No, he wrote everything. You know, chinchillas for fun and profit and, you know, hamsters as pets or meat and, you know, whatever he wrote. I, I, I got to uh, go to his printing facility in, in Neptune City years ago. And I went to his house and it's like his house was just frozen in time in maybe 1975. All the, the Naga hide and, and all the decor. I could almost see some of the backdrops from some of the fo- photography from some of the TFH magazines from, from back then. But uh, Well, see, that's because he was hiding from tax fraud. <laughs> <laughs> or violin controversies or... Oh, geez, what do you call them? Um, anyways, let's keep let's keep moving. Yeah, let's keep so, on subject. My I was apologies. Say, you, you run with a rough crowd. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, you know, I, I love this hobby. I love this industry. I love everybody in it, from the fish collectors to all my hobbyist friends. But back to Barcelos, they started exporting aquarium fish, and the Cardinal Tetra was the main species going out. The Rio Negro is kind of special. It's very unusual. Uh, The pH runs around uh, 4.5 or so, where most of the aquarium fish live. It has almost no conductivity and no dissolved solids, even though the the river is jet black. I have vacuumed that water through a a very fine filter disc, and there's almost nothing, almost no dissolved solids there. It also has a really dramatic high water and low water season, about 10 meters, and the land in the area in the basin doesn't have a lot of elevation so when that water goes up 10 meters it's almost unfathomable about how many acres you know hundreds of thousands of acres get flooded and go from a a tropical forest to flooded forest and the fish are connected to a lot of this also you know the the way the reason it's the pH is so low and the river is so black is the Guyana Shield, northern and northeastern South America, is actually of a pretty low elevation. In contrast to the headwaters of the Amazon in Peru and western South America, you know, it comes from the Andes. There's very high elevation there. So that water comes at a very high velocity and that keeps a lot of organic material, a lot of silt and stuff in the water. And that's the the basis for the different trophic levels. Like there are little fish and shrimp and invertebrates and things that eat the little stuff. And there are other things that eat the little things. And that's where a lot of the giant Amazonian fish come from. The arapaima and uh, the, the big giant peacock bass. The, 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 the stuff that you see on river monsters. Yeah, yeah, that stuff. Because of all the silt in the water. And and that affects it chemically. The pH is, uh, is much higher in the, the Amazon than it is in the Rio Negro. The Rio Negro's water comes from rainfall that falls on this very broad Guyana shield, low elevation. So when the so there's not torrent, there's not a lot of streams. The water leaches through the ground, and the ground is full of a lot of decaying organic matter. So where we use peat moss, almond leaves, and, and different organic material to create 
the black water or, you know, some of these bottled elixirs we get off the shelf. For those that are listening, it, that would be the police uh, to pick up Adam for the last comment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I'm still here. <laughs> Sorry, do continue. Okay, so the water has this strange composition to it. Very acidic, no conductivity, very little organic matter in the in the water column. It's kind of hard to be a fish. It's almost like an underwater desert because there's there's nothing. There's uh, there's very little aquatic plants. They don't like that water. There's so little nutrients and low low pH. A lot of you probably know Karen Randall. She's a, a really incredible aquarist specializing in aquatic plants. She knew what she was getting into into going to a, a river with almost no plants. So we're having a, a laugh about that. How fish deal with that? They're little. They're diverse. And they're, they're specialists in making use of some of these tiny little slivers of niches that they can eke a living out of, like marble hatchetfish. You know, how weird is that, having a mouth on the top of your head? And if a predator comes, they can fly away. And also the, the, the flood cycle, the populations boom during the high water because suddenly the fish have access to all that newly inundated flooded forest and all the organic material that's been growing in the, in the terrestrial period that they and their young can survive on. So, so the fish... If yeah, I may interrupt, essentially what you're saying is during the normal season when it's not uh, the flooding season, they're essentially sitting in a biological desert and they're just, they're, they're holding off until the flood. And the moment that the planes flood, they are, it just lights off. It's breeding time. It's flourishing. You have all this nutrients. Everything's hitting the water at once. Exactly. And it's really rough on the fish in the low water season when they're limited to just the main channels, that there's not a lot of places to hide and there's a lot of hungry predators. And so a lot of these these fish are almost annual fish. A lot of the caracens, the tetras and, and things from, from the Rio Negro are almost annual fish. A small percentage of them have the capacity to avoid the tetras and they, they have the fortitude and the endurance to get through this time of, of little food. And in fact, even more remarkable than that, at the end of the low water season, when they've spent so much time under these stressful circumstances, that actually gives them cues that the time of plenty is coming. And as you were saying, when they can sense the coming of the rainy season, they come into breeding condition. And, and that blows me away, you know, where these fish are so starved and malnourished and stressed, they come up with, uh, you know, mustering the energy to develop eggs and stuff because they, they want to spawn as soon as possible when the forest gets flooded to give their young first crack at the, at the, the new resources and also give them the most develop, development time during the high water season so that they'll have the best chance of, of living through the, the next low water season. So this is what you guys discovered on that trip in the 90s. No, I'll tell you what. When I was there in 1991, we went to Barcelos, and indeed it was a hub of aquarium fish, and I saw millions of fish. Barcelos is pretty remote. There's no road that goes to the city. There's a relatively small airstrip, and it would be financially impossible to ship fish out of Barcelos by plane. Uh, the main connection to Barcelos and a few of the other cities along the Rio Negro are these ferry boats, uh, large boats, 
that go from Manaus and they stop at a handful of cities along the way, including Barcelos. And on the way up, they'll be bringing a lot of the provisions that the cities need. I've seen buses on, on these boats and motorcycles and refrigerators and you know all kinds of food and stuff that's going to the cities. And then when the boat is making the return trip downriver, when it stops at Barcelos, that boat gets loaded with tubs of aquarium fish. The, the lower deck, it's about three decks high. Uh, the lower deck gets, gets filled with, uh, with tubs of aquarium fish. And then it, it takes another couple of days to get down to Manaus. The export uh, companies have trucks waiting at the port. They pick up their fish and bring them to the, the export facility. But I'll tell you, I was uh, a you know, raging hobbyist and I had gotten to you know my mecca. We were sort of some of the first aquarist gringos to get there, other than some individuals like Heiko Blair and stuff. I was just, just had adrenaline pumping. But I'll tell you, I saw that bottom deck of the boat and we counted some tubs we counted the the, the the quantity of fish in some of the tubs and they would have like 800 or thousand and there were thousands of tubs on the boat and the boat would stop there like three times a week and suddenly i had this sick feeling i thought oh my god you know I, I, I think it's safe to say that all hobbyists are also environmentalists care you know, deeply about the environment to the point of where we were driven to recreate it at home. That's another story, but I had a bit of a rant and a rage. And I said, this is awful. And I, I'm pretty sure at one point on that first trip to Barcelos, looking at that boat full of aquarium fish that was going to be coming out to all of us because, you know, we were providing the demand. I made it my mission. You know, I'm going to stop this. We should not be taking fish out of the rainforest for our hobby. Just seeing the, the sheer volume of the fish. Cardinals represent about 85% of the export. There are dozens of other species that come out of that region that represent... Well, well, was this the 90s or this now? Because 85%, that seems significant. It is significant in many ways. I'll tell you, it is very different now. And, and hopefully we have time uh, to get to that. But this was this was kind of at peak, and then this peak had had flatlined for a long time. There were, there were probably decades that this volume of fish were were coming out of there. That other fifteen percent, the vast majority of that were other caracens. It was marble hatchet fish, rummy nose tetras, bleeding heart tetras. But then a very small sliver were cichlids, catfish and stingrays and the cichlids would include you know a lot of the earth eaters that occur up there uh the heckled discus that, that come from up there so in the um, 90s stingrays were actually exported as a norm i didn't know that, yeah. that was done in the 90s i thought that was picked up around 2000s no it's been opened and closed it's kind of gone back and forth between being permitted and, and not being permitted but there were small quantities it just wasn't much of a demand in 1990. Not a lot of hobbyists wanted to get themselves stung and die. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and have a fish that's going to get to be the size of you know your your coffee table. It's been trendy for a little while, and we've we've done some sort of experiments with uh, some stingray fishing communities to work out some different methods and see what would work and what didn't. That perspective and that conclusion that I came to, which 
it was sort of a knee-jerk reaction. I saw an overwhelming amount of fish, and, I, and I'm from Boston, and we've wiped out our cod populations, and uh, our fisheries are in rough shape, and the, the target species are in rough shape. And the way that we capture fish up here is we use trawlers and, and draggers that, that do a lot of damage to the, the bottom of the ocean and damage fish fish habitat, and we do a lot of things to, that have resulted in the decline of, of our fishery. So I came there as a Bostonian, and I saw all these fish coming out, and that was sort of the basis for, for some of my conclusion for thinking that this volume is is, is not sustainable and it's not, not acceptable. However, that trip did work out. I'm turning the clock forward a little bit. Logistically, uh, we all had a great time. It was really fun, and I'll never forget it. The professor and I, professor from down there, said, you know what, let's let's do it again next year. That worked out. This professor, this was a means for him to get his students out into the field. And that's when they started seeing things like these fish coming into maturation, coming into, into spawning condition before the, the floods happen, seeing the populations of cardinal tetras, that their population peak is during the high water season. But when the water level drops, there's a massive die-off. Even if humans didn't exist, if hobbyists didn't exist, you know, uh, creating the demand for getting those fish out, there would be a natural die-off, cardinal tetras and other kerosens and other species that would just, they would just plummet um, down to a tiny fraction of what it had been a handful of months before at the peak of the population. But that cycle goes every year. It, it happens. Was this your idea? idea, Scott, all along? No, no. No, it wasn't my idea. The scientist was doing the science. The students were doing the science. So you all collectively were eating lobster in Boston going, wow, (laughs) these lobsters habitats going, we got to fix this somehow. And then it suddenly clicked. Oh, the Amazon floods, they're going to die anyway. We could do this as a, you know, ecological harvest. Well, there were a couple of other big pieces to it. When I was on that ranch saying, this is terrible, it's going to be my life's mission to stop it. I didn't know about that annual cycle of most of the fish going to this natural death. The other thing that I totally ignored or didn't see was the socioeconomic role that the aquarium fish trade plays for the people in the region. So originally you were petitioning just to stop importing altogether. Like we shouldn't be doing this. I I don't know how far my petition went, but it was certainly my my opinion that this is a a very bad thing. And I care about the environment. I care about fish and I, and I want to stop bad things. Then the science of the fishery and the population dynamics were really enlightening, but When the students at University of Amazonas were studying the overall fishery, it became apparent that the vast majority of rural folks in that region made their living based on catching and selling aquarium fish. In fact, um, we had a a PhD student studied it and he found that 60% of the revenue from, I've mentioned the municipality, that it's kind of like New York, New York. Barcelos City is in the municipality of Barcelos. Municipality is the size of Pennsylvania. So when I say there's 40,000 people living there, it's not many people at all, you know, in, in, in a region, I think it's like the size of Belgium or something. The alternatives, you know, it's, it's human nature. If you have a family, if you have kids and they need to eat, which kids do, pesky habit. You as a parent- They eat a lot. Would do, yeah, they do. So you would do anything 
that you could do, that you had to do to feed your kids. And in other parts of the Amazon, where there isn't this livelihood basis of the of the aquarium trade, people do the stuff that you see on TV. They cut trees and they grow exploding cows and, you know, crazy stuff. And, and that's not good for the environment. And it, it's sort of a, a human nature act. I, I really, I would never point my finger at those people because, you know, they, they do it because they have no other way of, of, of living. But in the Amazon, in, the, in the, the Rio Negro region, they have this global market demand of these beautiful fish. And, and again, back to some of the impact of the hydrology and the water chemistry on the fish, it's, it's hard to be a fish. So many different forms and species have come about. A lot of these species are weird looking. They're bizarre because there's not much organics and fish food in the water. They've miniaturized. So there's a very high abundance, a very high speciation of weird little fish. And we love weird little fish. So because of the Guyana shield and affecting the water chemistry and all that, and then this global aquarium hobby, which has created this demand and this this revenue stream, that's the whole background that created circumstances for Barcelos to be this incredible hub of, of aquarium fish and for the majority of the people to be involved in the aquarium fish trade one way or another. The folks there, the fishing communities, I've since learned Portuguese and have very good friends in the region that I enjoy talking with quite a bit. I didn't have that. I don't have that barrier that I had in 1991, where I was just, I, I might as well have been from another planet when I showed up there in terms of how much my, my understanding that I could grasp of what was going on right around me. Yeah, the so, Boston accent doesn't help in the end. No. <laughs> I do. It's it's kind of funny. Sometimes I have a Brazilian Boston accent, yeah, which, <laughs> which is kind of funny. But uh, Well, don't worry. Anyways, if, I, if I hear the p word i'll i'll censor it don't worry <laughs> what, what's the p word no i have to uh, censor it i can't say it that's either. not spanish no, it's, uh, portuguese is different than spanish oh don't worry i had a see i had a foreign exchange student from brazil oh that's right right oh. she uh she spoke fluent portuguese and the first word that she taught me was the f word <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah there's that Jim's just rolling his head. No, we won't say it on air, Jimmy. This is this is for science. Come on now. You do a duck anyways. <laughs> so how I said that uh, it's safe to say that us hobbyists are environmentalists, it turns out that the fish collectors are also environmentalists. Even though these fish have such a robust life cycle where they can, their po populations can be decimated down to a fraction and then they have this explosive sort of you know re, re, repopulation they're very sensitive to environmental conditions and if there's any significant environmental disruption like a big giant exploding cow farm or something like that the fish <laughs> won't tolerate it and uh, and they 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 disappear and the fishing community knows that I think everybody knows the word NIMBY, not in my backyard. So uh, the fishing community are these eco-NIMBYs. How, how about the class for those that don't, that are listening right now? Because we have people okay. all over the world. Yeah, no, Not in my backyard. It's, it's when people uh, are living somewhere and there's some development going on that they don't, like let's say um, windmills, that's a good example. You know, all of us environmentalists are pro-sustainable energy and we love windmills, but then when it comes time to put a windmill field in your town, suddenly everybody's opposed uh, to, to, to windmills. The fishing community, again, they, they earn their 
family sustenance from the demand and the revenue stream that comes from here, from from these aquarium fish. So fish are, are extremely important to them. And catching fish is a pretty low technology thing. They have a, a dugout canoe that they make themselves. They make nets out of window mosquito mesh material. And that mosquito mesh is is readily available and it's very cheap. And one reason for that is there are some government want people to be able to have screens on all their windows for their house just to try to cut down on any mosquito-borne disease transmission. So uh, you'll see that stuff, that mosquito mesh used for tons and tons of things in, in addition to windows, window screens. They know the Amazon. It, it's very humbling for me to spend time with fisher friends out in the field because I feel like such a klutz and they're just so second nature. They're just a uh, natural there at it. They'll, they'll point to a bush a hundred feet away and they'll say, oh, there's probably pencil fish there. And I'll say, which bush? And they'll say, the green one. And, <laughs> and whatever, and we'll go there and I'll jump out with my mask and snorkel. And they'll start wielding their net. And indeed, it's a, it's a time of, uh, of pencil fish. So they really know their stuff. Th- that provides their incentive and, and motivation to try to protect the environment and minimize their impact on it and anybody's impact on it. So holy cow, you know, going back to that rant I was on about, you know, this fish hobby that I've been in my whole life. I'm now, my, my hands are dirty in this and I, I, I feel sick about it. And I, we've got to stop catching these fish. I could not have been more wrong. I was 100% wrong. Had I been able to snap my fingers and shut down the Cardinal Tetra fishery and turn it over to being farmed in Southeast Asia and, and Tampa, it would have been devastating on the Rio Negro because the whole carpet would have been pulled out under the whole human community. Suddenly, fish wouldn't be worth anything anymore and they'd have to find something else to do to feed their families and they would lose that incentive to protect the environment. I would say you guys now came up with this conclusion that this is an ecological safe way to harvest aquarium species that are already going to die because the flood uh, flooding uh, plains would dry up and keeps the economy going for a lot of these uh, native cultures and people. When did the light bulb go off that, hey, we need to make this into a organization to try to preserve this area and preserve this culture? It was about 1993 or 94 that we had, we, we sat quiet a little bit in 92 and 93. It must've been 94 or 95 before we shifted from, you know, the gringos having an enjoyable fishy vacation and, and supporting some of the local academics to having some of these results coming in from the students' theses and their, and the different projects that were going on. And we sort of started getting chills, like realizing that even back then, um, kind of the holy grail was to say that something is sustainable. It's sustainable. That can be continued without doing damage. And we were saying this fishery, that word sustainable, that falls far short of what's going on here. This is just, this is not just a benign, neutral, low impact thing. This fishery is a high impact fishery. 
And under normal circumstances, you wouldn't want to call a fishery, you, you know, wouldn't be a good thing because the cod fishery was a high impact fishery and boy, did that have an impact. But we can, we can say that the Cardinal Tetra fishery is a high impact fishery, but in a positive way. So and, how did you guys get yeah. started on all this? Again, I'm looking here at your, your notes and it uh, shows on the website that in 1995, this became an official nonprofit right. to yes. work this. So where was the inception? You guys contacted, you know, a lot of the natives and said, hey, we're going to start this organization. And I'm assuming, you know, proceeds went to them, but it also went to the organization. So w- what does the organization do besides, you know, fund this channel of, sure. re- of reasonably caught fish? Yeah, it, it's really complex. Um, we aren't really financially tied to the, the fishery. Sometimes we get some one-off donations from some of the trade groups. But when, when we had the realization of this, that dream, that obsession that I, I came up with in 1990, unfortunately had come true. The neon Unfortunately? Tetra, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, what, what I, the thing I wanted in 1990 started happening and I freaked out. It, it has been a lot of freakouts. But anyways, um, they've been producing neon tetras in fish farms for generations because the, the Andes sourced water is a lot more like the water in, in Tampa, in Singapore, in Malaysia. So neon tetras were bred with, with little problem. But if you take a fish from 4.5 and try to breed it in Tampa, it ain't going to happen. It's, 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 it's a pretty tough thing if you're trying to do what's done with neon tetras. But the aquaculture industry has come up with techniques to make spawning of fish a lot more easy to control by using hormones. You can, you can treat fish with hormones and physiologically kind of induce or force them to come into breeding condition. And then you can, as you go through your generations, you can selectively choose some of the, that yield from that, from that brood that seem to be more tolerant of the conditions on your farm. And, and, you know, you can selectively breed a strain of fish that look just like a cardinal tetra and they probably have the same DNA, but suddenly they're tolerant of uh, higher pH water and the tolerant of, of captive circumstances. So that's why I say, oh, you know, when I wanted to shift the wild fishery to a to a farm situation, it, it, it came true and my dream became my, my nightmare because that was around the time that I was realizing that Oh my God, I, I don't have blood on my hands. You know, I should be proud as a hobbyist because myself and my community that loves aquarium fish and we open up our wallets and we put a lot of money into this revenue stream that goes to a lot of these developing countries. It's It's been the benefit to the region, not just the benefit, it's, it's really protected. If conditions are good for cardinal tetras, they're good for jaguars, they're good for monkeys they're good for the whole biodiversity of the whole region and a couple of years ago i had a carbon specialist come along with me on a trip and he did some calculations about how much forest was in the region that's being protected by the fishing community so he he did some calculations to figure out how much carbon is is sequestered in all of those giant amazonian trees and not only that but how much atmospheric scrubbing is going on but with all that photosynthesis in the tropics how much co2 is being removed from the atmosphere from this region that's protected because of the fish hobby actually uh something interesting to google you might you might put this uh, a link on the on the page as well the united nations has 14 
goals for sustainable development. And in this region, this fishery in the Rio Negro ticks every single box in terms of benefiting uh, hum humans and food security, equality for men and women. Women get paid exactly the same that men get paid for Cardinal Tetras, and they always have. You're paid by fish. So there's no gender differential whatsoever. Well, let's talk and, a couple of logistics now that we got a lot of the background. All right. <laughs> let's, I mean, number one, you know, what does it look like in a day now? Everything that has to do with cost of living, and I'm assuming cost of living in the Amazon is a lot lower than it is here, but, you know, let's say a, a wholesale, right? A Cardinal Tetra costs uh, a buck and a quarter, right? Wholesale. So they get a yep. quarter of fish? Actually, they get closer to a penny of fish. Okay. So still, you got to remember that that's encapsulating shipping, all the handling, all the port taxation. So, I mean, it's it's certainly something, but... Yeah, we, we have a table of um, the different uh, tiers of the um, supply chain and what they pay and what they get paid and what their overhead is. I think it's still unfair. I think the fishers need to get paid more. And that's something that we're working on and we're doing some things. Back to the future here, currently, one of the reasons why farmed cardinal tetras might outcompete the wild cardinal tetras is things related to how the fish are handled and the, the quality and their condition for trade compared to fish that are raised on a farm. So we have uh, a veterinarian, a specialist in uh, aquarium fish. He's amazing. He's been all over all over the world. He's a he's a professor, and uh, so he's and he's come on uh, quite a few trips. And we've done a lot of observations about where stress might be happening, where there are issues related to uh, nutrition or disease management or things like that. Years ago, we helped the fishers organize a fishers association. So they'll, they'll have some, some power of numbers for negotiating. And what we've been doing is working with all the members that are registered in the association and training them in best handling practices. So with best handling practices, we've gone about that in three phases. The first phase was to identify everywhere where something needs to be improved. Then we, we wrote up what on a, on a practical level, you know, you have to have reasonable down to earth expectations about rural Amazonian fishermen, you know, the level of, of, of care and, and technology and stuff they have access to. We wrote up what should be best handling practices. We shared that with our Brazil team for them to say, no, that's not going to work like that. Let's, let's refine that. So phase two, we called it train the trainers. The veterinarian and I knew that it was completely impractical for he and I to be the ones to train the actual fishers. To have gringos standing there, you know, that's just going to throw the whole situation off uh, completely. So we have a fantastic team, about a dozen and a half people that are all volunteers in, in Brazil. None of them are veterinarians or fish clinicians. They're all very smart and they're all educated people. They're all people that know how to sit in a lecture and take the information. This was funded by the World Pet Association in the U.S. This phase two, Train the Trainers. For about a week, we had a very intensive training program for our Brazilian team and stuff even on the molecular level that we knew would be way more minutia that they would have to you know, include in things that they were talking to fishermen about. But we wanted to give them a very sound, comprehensive understanding of the, the basis of the fish stress 
response and the effect that trauma has on fish. Phase three was to actually do the training, to go out into the field and train the fishers. When I, I did my master's thesis on measuring the physiological stress response in cardinal tetras in the trade chain, and I, I lived down in the Amazon for a while, and the aquaculture industry has developed some methods where you can measure some chemistry of, uh, in the fish's body that happens when the fish experience stress. There was one publication that was a I was thrilled when I came across it. It was simple techniques for measuring the fish physiological stress response in the field. And I thought, holy cow. Although all of those techniques were based on aquaculture fish in the field meant standing on the, the next to a fish pen, um, but it was mostly salmonids and tilapia. And you could stick a hypodermic in a fish and draw basically as much blood as you wanted. So with the cardinal tetras, I found that they weighed 0.2 grams at the point of capture. I, I developed techniques to get blood and, and plasma from 0.2 gram fish on a canoe in the middle of the Amazon. So, but I wanted a tool set of, you know, scientists like numbers. They like to use established protocols so you can refer to them. So when we develop best handling practices and someone challenges us, say, what do you mean best handling practices? We have ways that we can measure the fish stress response that, that's the, the industry standards. Some of it is just totally intuitive, you know, don't leave the fish in the sun and, and things like that. So we're working to maximize the quality and minimize the stress on the fish. And this is One, just to paint that it's not just the care of the fish. This is to essentially combat what you called your worst nightmare of farmed raised cardinals. And this is so backwards for me listening to this. I know, I know my I listeners know. are going to be messaging me back like, no, no, no. The rule book is if it's wild, don't get it. Only get farm raised fish. That is like the go to <laughs> thing when you hear any of this. So when I talk to yeah. people about, oh, we have this uh, Project Paiva and these are all wild caught fish. The, immediate responses unless you're adam because adam loves yeah. everything wild but most right. of it is I do. oh yeah. no it's going to destroy their habitat well how you do it like no 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 this is sustainable caught fish supporting a culture and it's really hard for people to wrap their head around but that's essentially what you're doing with this project is you're trying to find ways to now combat your 80 the one of the most popular fish in the amazon and trying mm -hmm. to get them cultured the way they should have been because we fought incorrectly for years and, and is, yeah. is the whole goal then to, to just try to keep because i mean there's a, a large percent of fish that you lose unfortunately in transport and is the goal to try to minimize the amount of loss you're going to have with these fish of course, of course. And if the fish are handled in a, in a better way, we know this is hobbyist, then mortality is sort of the last, the last line that you cross. We, we want it much better than that. We want these fish to be thriving. And if they're exposed to a stressor, low dissolved oxygen, high ammonia, something like that. Jimmy with his pants we, off. Yeah, we, we, we want those fish to be in the best possible condition. And it, it just makes sense on every single level. You know, there's nothing of stressed fish other than, you know, some academics uh, reports or something. But we know that a lot of it was just basic knowledge. But, um, you know, you need the numbers and you, you, you need to use the accepted protocols and all that. So now to try to fast forward. Okay, we have this established in 1995. You guys go out how long until essentially you put a program together and bring what the first batch to market or the first uh, shipment to market? You know, how long between um, the beginning well, the, to the, the, to the kickoff? The fish have been going since the 1950s. The fish have been have been coming out and the money has been going in. That's in decline now. 
And so we, we want to reverse that. We want to increase the revenue and we want to maximize the economic benefit and the environmental, the driver for environmentalism and all those other good things that come out of the fishery. We want to maximize the good stuff and minimize bad stuff. So as you say, this is counterintuitive and it's going to cause that wince. And I'll tell you, I was, I was wincing at the introduction to the show when you were saying, oh, we had one negative response come back. And I, I, just, <laughs> I was like, wait till they hear what I have to say about I'm advocating. I'm, I'm a conservation biologist and I'm advocating for the extraction of 40 million individual fish per season from from one region and i am i'm saying this now you know i've been in this for like 30 years or so but we've been very cautious you haven't heard about a lot of this because it is such an extreme statement we just wanted it to be bulletproof and and indefensible so we we feel that we're there so we're in an action mode now which is working with the exporters uh, and the fishers the exporters a lot of them use stream water at their facilities because that stream water has a pH of 4.5. And they know they don't want to pH shock the fish. They they want to give them that acid water that they came from. Well, I guess to elaborate on the question, Scott, would be, yeah. you know, from 1995 to the first batch, like, we see when we talk to wholesalers uh, that there's stuff labeled Project Paiba. And that's what we're yeah. looking for on purpose because we don't want wild unless it's been gone through the process. That's what the organization right. that you provide has a stamp yeah. on the fish saying this was gotten in a sustainable, responsible manner. Okay, I, I'll try to get that. You're asking about uh, sort of our development. In 95, the light bulb went off. I remember sitting at a stream. We were sitting in the Rio Branco and we came up with this slogan, buy a fish, save a tree. That has endured. That's just so catchy. And it, uh, <laughs> that, that came on. And uh, I established a 501c3, a U.S. nonprofit organization. We have federal status as, as being a nonprofit organization because, I mean, I'm an individual and I'm organizing these trips and, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, if it's going through my bank account, you know, that looks kind of funny. And, and the 501c3 lets us take donations and give people acknowledgement so they can use that for, for their, their tax refunds that they're that they're supporting a charity and we started getting more organized we have a board of advisors representing people from the aquarium trade people from public aquariums and people from the the, the conservation community and i'll tell you if you turn the clock the clock back even just 10 years ago and you said a wildlife trader a conservation biologist and a public aquarium person sit down at a bar it's it's not going to be pretty you know what would the conservation people say to the wildlife traders but i'll tell you now Groups like the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the World Wildlife Fund, Conservation International, they see this case study as something of great hope. And they now look at people like Sandy Moore, the president of Seagrass Farms, as being one of the most effective conservationists you know, around because she's writing her checks every week. She has money that's going to all sorts of regions of biological importance. And a, a company like Seagrass Farms is sending money to all these places. I mean, they're doing business. They want to buy fish and fish cost money, but the outcome is all these things of food security and connecting people to the environment. And so with me, um, I, I'm working well with everybody, but um, my hope is one of the roles for the zoo and aquarium community to play a very meaningful role in this, to accept this 
hypothesis or, or these circumstances and look at it as a mechanism of achieving their highest goals of protecting the environment. And the thing about the zoos and aquariums is there's a, a, an organization called the, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums in the U.S. Countrywide, we have about 180 million visitors a year that come to zoos and aquariums. This is a self-selected population that you can say is drawn to wildlife and they care about wildlife. And, you know, and, and if not before they went to the zoo aquarium, certainly after because they're just so effective about connecting people with uh with wildlife and, and raising concern about the environment the other thing about zoo and aquarium visitors is they have disposable income it's not cheap to go to, to pay admission <laughs> for those who do um uh-huh. and, <laughs> and you know feed the kids and pay for parking and all that you're probably looking at a couple of hundred bucks by the end of the day if we say we spotlight cardinal tetras downstream from some of the most compelling exhibits where where we've really accessed depths of the hearts and the minds of these people. And then we get these people thinking, oh my God, these fish are incredible and they're in trouble. What can we do? What can I do here in America to help fish in the Amazon? And then downstream in the exhibits, you see a home aquarium type exhibit with Cardinal Tetras and you tell this story. And so not only do you tell the story, these are my dreams, I'm, I'm dreaming here, uh, this doesn't exist um, yet. What I'd like to have is a QR code or something like that at the exhibit so the visitor can snap the QR code. And that's going to give them the, this whole story again. But not only that, it's going to have their GPS flag fish stores. A few days after their aquarium visit, they'll get a text message. Hey, you know, what about this? Do you, do you want to think about starting an, an aquarium? And here's a, uh, an LFS down, down the street from you that has wild caught aquarium fish. And, you know, one of the participants in this is Hagen or uh, another, another producer that, that, that's supporting or uh, World Pet Association members that are supporting this, this hobby. And you can go and you can buy an aquarium and you can buy some Cardinal Tetras. And let me tell you this, this is, this is also a dream although we're getting there part of it is this fishers association they all have license numbers and we have satellite coordinates for where they live and where they fish what i want to do is when that fisher comes into barcelos with his fish is that tub either gets a poker chip or a floating piece of styrofoam or a sticker on the tub but it gets a tracking number. And when it goes into Barcelos, a file is started and we'll know who caught that fish and where that fish came from. So when it gets to the exporter, they update the file as to it comes in. And the best handling practices for exporters is by all means, when you receive the fish, keep them in acid water, feed them some special food with special components that help fish recover from stress and get stabilized. And hold them in the least expensive water. The other water that they have is well water. In Manaus, the well water is about six or 6.5. And so if the fish come in at 4.5, have them at 4.5, give them some good food, get them physiologically in good stable condition, and then pre-export take a couple of weeks, a month, you know, whatever our, we haven't really tested that, you know, exposing these fish to pH shifts and at what rate they can go up two units, two units is a lot, but condition them to a near neutral 
pH. And that's a heck of a different fish that's had good nutrition and has been pH acclimated. So when the fish arrives in Florida or wherever, it still has that tracking number with it. When the retailers order their fish, the tracking number goes with the fish. When they receive the box of fish, there's a sticker with our logo and our buy a fish, save a tree. They can follow the whole bouncing ball. They I actually mean, have this for saltwater. They do. Right. Yeah. So, so they have a numerical code, and when the hobbyist gets home, they, they go to a challenge page, and then they put in the tracking number, and if that group of fish has gone to Chicago within the last 90 days, just to, to confirm, you know, if they're in the Chicago area. So they're online, and like you say, so they can get a picture of the fisher that caught their fish. We do interviews. I, I'm a member of Boston Aquarium Society, and I ask them, all right, guys, tonight at this meeting, let's come up with 10 questions you would have if you could ask an Amazonian fisher, you know, 10 questions. And we ask them those questions. And I added more, one more question onto it, which was, if you couldn't sell fish one day, what would you do? And we, so we've started recording those because I want the hobbyists to get chills. I want them to look at their aquarium with individual cardinal tetras, look at their computer on whatever social media platform or whatever. You guys know more about this than me, but they learn about the history of their fish. Now, in one other thing, tell me, what was that system that you were talking about? Go Goliath or something? Where Leviathan. Leviathan. Here's what I'd like to do is have a mini Leviathan. That's sort of a oxymoron but um have your home aquarium have a plug strip labeled here's where you plug in your heater here's where you plug in your lights here's where you plug in your pumps so that plug strip has bluetooth and you tell it from your smartphone the tracking number of your fish and it knows the lat and the longitude of where your fish come from so let's say you get up at five o'clock in the morning your fish tank is going to be dark about 5.30, you're going to see your LED lights start to dim on because they're accessing the global satellite system that's monitoring the weather patterns, and it reproduces it on a live basis in your home aquarium. See, Scott's got, uh, we got to hook up Scott with Brandon. We got we to get this uh, get this on motion. But So, Scott. So, other things, like, sorry, just I'll, I'll wrap up real quick. Like that <laughs> annual cycle. I'm going to reel you back in yet. I know. There will be times when you don't feed your fish. Where you have your fish call on their, their fatty reserves to take whatever lipid or whatever it is to have the most natural life possible. And, and we'll be a whole new level of the hobby and, and animal care because it's going to be so closely connected to nature. And with the zoos and aquariums, if we inspire our fish-loving people, we're going to grow the hobby. We're going to help the hobby navigate the challenges that could kill that will likely kill the hobby if we don't do something about it suddenly if we look at the aquarium hobby that so many people are saying is the problem and then suddenly it's looked at as the solution we can reinvent the hobby and expose a whole new facet that already exists it just needs to be elucidated and inspire the next generation of fish keepers to get into it and to get into it big time okay so if you've ever looked up the word passion in the dictionary <laughs> uh, your name has got to be there because people ask me you know why do you love fish so much and all i have to do is just have them listen to the last five minutes of this podcast and i don't even have to answer that question you sir <laughs> are very inspired and uh inspire us so i do have to reel in we're getting towards the end of the podcast and i have hard questions that need to Please. be answered so number one we asked before you know when uh when did that first you know project piaba 
fish come out. But this is be a research project to see exactly how it could be done. So you guys were just watching the market for many years, trying to do studies, trying to analyze it. That's why you didn't have a particular answer for me is because that was a case study. And that really did paint us a picture. You know, what type of fish? Because that's the number one thing. We hear cardinal tetras, but what type of fish does Project Piava really uh, support? So when I go, you gave the example of seagrass being one of the backers. And when I go and look, you know, it changes from season to season what stock's available. But I'm just going to name a couple, and maybe you can fill in some holes. So you said before, cardinal tetras, rummy nose tetras, bleeding hearts, toucan tetras, green neon tetras. We have Apistogamas, at least some of them. There's unique angelfish that are wild. All different types of placos, including lemon placos. What other things, you know, really are supported by Project Piaba? Project Piaba is is limited to the Rio Negro region. Piaba is the local word for minnow or a small fish, and that's where our name came from. And I mentioned a group earlier called the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. That is the biggest, oldest, most significant environmental group in the world. It's, it's where all the scientists are connected to, uh, the academics. And there's a lot of specialists that specialize in different types of wildlife and the environment. There's a group called the Freshwater Fish Specialist Group, the FFSG. And I was thrilled to be invited to be part of that group and then knocked off my chair when they asked me they said specialist groups can have subgroups we would like you to set up a subgroup based on deriving benefits from the aquarium trade and I said, oh, my God, you know, it's gone from the, the problem to the, to the solution. So I, I am the global chair for the IUCN FFSG, and I have set up the Home Aquarium Fish subgroup. And one little anecdotal thing is I don't say ornamental anymore. I don't like that word. I don't think that live animals are ornaments. I think it's derogatory, and I think we're shooting ourselves in the foot by calling fish ornaments when we have so many groups trying to you know burn us down. So the best I've come up with is aquarium fish to to not call them ornaments. Anyways, so, and when I when I set up this IUCN group, that was the day I said, okay, ornamentals out. I'm, now that I'm res- representing the IUCN, there's no way I'm going to call animals. I've always used shellfish. I mean, because you have edible, you have bait, and shellfish. I know. Keep thinking about it, and I encourage your audience to think about it as well. But yeah, aquarium fish. So. I am looking, and I hope to do my PhD on this, I'm looking through the whole tropical band globally to look at all regions of biological importance where aquarium fish are or could be coming from. And the fish I'm most interested in are the fish that have a very high recruitment and short lifespans, tetras, barbs, rainbow fish, carisons, all the the carisons. So this list that we have here is just what's at the moment. You're expanding to other entire areas, other species. This is just what is really uh, supported at the moment, but it's expanding year yeah. by year. I'm going to take the world over based on pretty little fish. I'll <laughs> there tell you. you go, Scott. I, I, I hope I live along. I, I, re- I remember in my early 20s, I, it was one night I was working late. I think I was like literally on my knees scrubbing my floor where I work. And I thought, holy cow, this is going to take a lifetime to, to do this. And then I thought... I have a lifetime. Now I know what I'm going to do. So anyways, yeah, I've been to India and Malaysia and different countries that want to solve 
the humanitarian problems and the environmental problems at the same time when they're so often in conflict. In that but case, t- can we get a sh- like it, just a short answer of like a hint yeah. of what like the next thing we can see on the uh, Project uh, Piava's list? Like the next well, fish that you, you expect to hit that, you know, import list. I hope the traceability uh, will come about and will continue to solidify this case study and then work with folks. I have uh, on my board, I have somebody from the World Bank and humanitarian groups because they're seeing this as a mechanism. So we're going to crawl. My, my boards, Tell me, you're telling me you need to reel me in. Imagine, you know, I'm on a conference call with my boards and I'm spewing some of this stuff at them. And uh, they'll say, okay, you know, you're, you're our leader, but please come back down to earth. And <laughs> let's, let's, let's crawl before we can walk. So, so uh, no hints, no hint at a species. Come on, give us a leak. We want to know what, what's the next uh, pro- Project Piaba fish I'm going to see yes. on a Seagrass list. Uh, <laughs> let me see. Parakeets. Um, Parakeets. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah there, there's a story there. Um, <laughs> oh, Den- oh, I need to hear this. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Denison barbs in India. Oh, Denisonians. Den- yes, in fact, you know I'm what? so I'm happy ta- you said that. That's like one of my favorite fish. I've been talking to tiger people about Denison barbs. And I'll say, you tiger people, you're so, you know, you're, you're worried about poaching and, you know, habitat encroachment and all this stuff. Get with me on fish. Let's focus on the fish and the tigers are going to are gonna thrive because of it. And if you establish communities in India and in the range, ranges where tigers occur, they're suddenly going to have their food security issues addressed. They're going to have a foreseeable income that will be available for, for their lifetime and their kids' lifetimes as long as they protect the habitats where Denisoni can spawn. And, and to give, so, give listeners a quick background, these are uh, commonly referred to as rose-line sharks in the trade. They're a very hardy species, very peaceful in the aquarium. I've had them for many, many years. I have uh, one left that's about probably 11 years old in my own aquarium and they're very expensive the cheapest you can even find at a retail rate is maybe like a petco for 20 dollars with no color i'm very happy to hear this because it's a beautiful gorgeous fish like you drew a marker a red marker across this the side and the habitat that would be protected and fostered for maximizing denisoni populations would be great for tigers and the people that are desperate and starving and poaching tigers, they don't do it because they hate tigers. They do it because they have no other alternative. And Las Vegas pays a lot since uh, they're, they're down <laughs> a couple. Yeah, exactly. And But we, the hobbyists, you know, can give them that, that revenue stream. And the cost, I want these fish that are drivers of good things, I want them to be recognized for that. And I, and I want them to be treated the, w- the way they should. And I'll tell you, I'll give you one example. One of the competitive disadvantages is often air freight costs for bringing fish from India and from, from some of these places. The airlines are polluters. They're atmospheric polluters. But if they help to support an industry that results in protection of tropical forests, then they offset a lot of their carbon that they put out. And so I think they should they should carry the fish for free or be compensated in some way from the carbon markets to offset. Hey, I can see this call to Schmelta Airlines going real good. 
<laughs> well, I, 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 one of my volunteers at the aquarium was good at Photoshop, and I have a really cool Brazilian airline plane that's been that looks like a giant cardinal tetra. So Excellent. I was uh, envisioning the national airline of India, you know, as a, as a Denisonai barb, and every country having its flagship species, you know, have a have a plane that's. Uh, I'm on board. Literally. <laughs> so a couple other questions that we have is people are listening to this, right? And number one, they're going to ask, where can I get fish that supports Project Piaba? And two, we'll have pet store owners that you know, they, they, some of them are heard about this in the past, but maybe just listening to you and your passion have inspired them to display this in their store and educate the customers on this. How can me as a store owner or me as a hobbyist participate? So it starts with the store. How can I start getting signed up with fish from Project Pieba. We're working on that. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm sorry I'm burning out the clock here, but I'm sure you know I, I could I could just I could go on. We um, might have to have a part the, two. You know, do, we'll do, we'll work do it you out. Remember, do you remember the Marine Aquarium Council, Mac? Yes. They yeah. published a lot of articles and I loved Mac. I was part of the team brainstorming and it was we're gonna turn, you know, marine reef fisheries into great things. A lot of articles were published. And a lot of hobbyists started going into stores and saying, okay, I only want to buy Mac certified fish. And then the store would say, you know what? I'd love to buy Mac certified fish too. Tell me where I can get them. So there was a major problem with, with distribution and they peaked too soon because the, everybody was just so enthusiastic and excited and stuff and talking about it and saying everything that everybody wanted to hear. Are you telling the, us it's too soon? No, not not exactly. I would say go to the independent stores and ask them if they have wild cardinal tetras. It's the next step is to have something associated with our organization. I mean that they're traceable and best handling practices. But right now, if you buy a wild cardinal tetra, your money is is going to the Amazon. Can I tell another quick little study story? I, I mean, or, we're, we're running out of time. I got more questions. Okay. All right, go, go with your, your, but I think mostly the independent stores, ask them, ask them if they have wild cardinal tetras, send them to our website, worst case scenario, drop us a line on Facebook or our, our website, we'll do our best to connect to you. So I, I guess one thing would be, number one, like you said, ask for wild cardinal tetras, but uh, two, if they really want to, and you mentioned this before, you know, Seagrass Farms does have Project Piaba species on their, their list. So talk to your pet store, see if they work with them and they can get that. But be, uh, best of all, do you have marketing materials available to educate customers at pet stores that they can purchase from you? We don't. We, we just... Oh, no. Uh, no, we have no money. We have we're, we have, we have nothing. Sometimes, as I described, that, that phase two of best handling practices, that was something we could come up with a budget and, and the group would say, yes, we'll fund that. But other than that, it's kind of my bank account and my credit cards. What I need to get, I, I don't think in the aquarium trade and the pet trade, I don't think that there's enough free money around to afford funding a nonprofit like this. I think I need to get with the people that care about climate change and food security and things like that. Well, and until then, yeah. well, I'll put right. up your link for, again, it's projectpiaba.org. And is there yes. anywhere on your site that, that someone listening can donate to you directly? Yes, we have a, a donate tag. Fantastic. That'll be in our show notes. So uh, until you get those, we'll, uh, we'll have our listeners help out. But the last question is, I see something on your website that intrigues me about some more future plans. I see something that says aquarium kits and I got excited. Yes, we've worked with, with Central and we're prototyping some Rio Negro themed aquarium kits that come with their black water material, wood, and the story of Project Piaba. That's on a fairly um, 
small scale. But but yes, uh, Central Pat, we're we're working on a on a prototype themed aquarium. Fantastic. So we'll be looking out for that. And now, Jim, Adam, I know you guys got questions. Let's let's get them out quick. Few questions. Uh, like one of the questions was, do you work with sighty species or do you kind of avoid those? There aren't a lot in the Rio Negro, and there are other laws that that supersede that. Um, so so no, we aren't working with any any CITES species. I, I do have a place where I, I, I see that. For example, in Singapore, they are producing scleropages, the Asian bony tongue or Asian arowana. That's a fish that's highly regulated because their, their stocks are threatened in the wild. But the ones that they have in Singapore, they're breeding like netback and, and Marlboro red and these morphs, they, they haven't seen, you know, the wild in many, many generations. So by I don't think that those captive bred farmed CITES listed because they're the species. I don't think those fish should be limited by CITES. And in fact, I'd like to see them microchipped. You know, you can put a little pit tag, passive internal transponder to confirm that they are a farm raised fish, but there should be a duty or a tax that goes to a fund that helps protect the species in the wild. Uh, just because something is on CITES doesn't mean absolutely that it, it should not be traded. And, and again, this example is referring to captive bread stock with no draw of wild specimens, you know, from wild populations that are actually in trouble. But it would be, be nice if we could use that as a resource that would result in a, in a benefit to the species in the wild. It sounds like you work for an aquarium and want yourself some uh, Asian marijuana. <laughs> yeah, I get the confiscated <laughs> ones. I had a dozen and a half fall in my lap one time, and I'm like, what am I going to do with these things? You know, Display um, them. Love them donate, forever. Donate them to the friendly aquarium guy. <laughs> right. Auction them. Yeah. No, no. All right. What other questions, Adam? Have you ever thought of using these collection techniques for like specimens to go for to like zoos or aquariums, like help the native people? Because they're going to know where the fish are, like you were saying about how the pencil fish are in that bush and they know that. Right. Has it ever been an idea to go for like collections and take the native people with them to do this or and then kind of give them like their fish rate or a little better? Um, species preservation, I, I think you're going after. Yeah, species preservation so that they people will see stuff because there's lots of fish out there that people don't see in the aquarium. That may not be the, the terrible word ornamental. Right. Well, right now we have about two dozen aquariums that are showcasing cardinal tetras and telling the Project Piava story. We want to, to talk the talk and walk the walk. And we're very grateful that Seagrass Farms now has it literally listed. Here are the fish coming from, from Manaus. And you know, this is their business. They have a lot to lose on this. This is my, my hobby. You know, if this whole thing fails, I, I can still scrub algae for a living. Understandably, they're going forward and using their techniques to do market testing and, and, you know, find out if there's a return on investment, you know, on the small scale and on the big scale. Are, are, are these going to command a decent acceptable profit? And is this going to result in animal rights organizations leaving us alone and stop passing laws that put us out of business and they're stupid? Yeah, I agree with that part. All right. What other questions you got, Adam? No, I'm good. Jim can go. You know, I've got a quick question. You know, you're talking about about collecting the fish and training the fishermen to 
collect these fish, what what type of things are you are you teaching them? Is, are you talking about handling them with certain nets or? or okay, I'll tell you right at the point of capture, the nets that they use with the mosquito screening. Some fishermen, most most fishers, what it's a it's a pretty big net, and they'll and it, it has a frame to it. They'll put it in the water where they know there are cardinals. Either they see see them or they know it's they're there. Then they'll use their paddle to chase a little school of fish into their net. What they often do is lift the net out of the water and they will scoop out any bycatch, any fish that their buyers don't want and uh, they toss them back uh, in the river. But while that's happening, the fish flop on around on this, this nylon mosquito netting and it damages their mucus coating and it damages their epithelium. And when I was doing my master's thesis, I observed that some other fishers that I went out with, they wouldn't remove the net entirely from the water. They would leave a little, a little bowl, like, like, like a, a, a breakfast bowl, you know, a, a volume of water, but all the fish would have sort of gone down to that, that last bit of water that concentrated. And then they would sort the fish out of that little puddle and then take their gourd, depress it into the puddle and scoop up the cardinal tetras. And then in their canoe, on their, their bench, they would pivot their body to their holding container that's that's in the canoe behind them. They would depress the gourd with the fish in the water into their maybe six gallons of, of, of water carrying in the canoe. And they would, they would invert the gourd. And so the fish would never have or would have minimal contact with anything. They would keep them in that cushion of water all the time. I don't know why some of them did it one way and some do the others. I don't know if some of them just don't care or they don't think it's a problem. But we've developed slides showing what happens to fish uh, when they have their mucus and their their epithelium, their protective coatings uh, corrupted like that. So that's one thing right at the point of capture. And we're talking about what's practical, what's doable. So if you have a fish right at point of capture that gets physically traumatized like that compared to a fish that that's kept in water the whole time it's a huge difference in their capacity to endure the subsequent stressors that are downstream in the in the supply chain so that's that's an example um, there other things they they the exporters fast the cardinals for two or three days because they want to maximize the stocking density for the boxes just for you know get the best um, ratio for the, the the shipping rate for the box but fasting a little fish like that and then putting them in a stressful condition can be can be kind of tough. What I'd like to see, and this needs to be tested, is a, a palatable food for cardinals that is all, it's 100% complex carbs and no protein. And the reason is because the waste products from a fish that's been gut loaded with all carbs, as opposed to a high protein feed, is much different. The, 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 the poop and the pee from the carbs is not nearly as toxic as as the protein. So anyways, we're looking all, all through the, 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 the tray to do reasonable, practical things. Keep the fish out of the sun. You know, you just got to keep the fish out of the sun. It's going to, the, the DO is going to go down and the plasma cortisol is going to go up. The plasma chloride will go up and then they'll retain a lot of toxins in their body because their gills will get inflamed and they won't be able to discharge a lot of the cellular waste because they'll be going into their physiological stress response. So every little thing that can be done to reduce that stress response. And, you know, when you get butterflies in your stomach, 
that's part of the physiological stress response. And it's not good for fish, and we can do a lot to take the edge off it. You know, the, the last time I was at Secrets Farms, it wasn't that many years ago, probably a year ago, and they were talking about that they had retrained their people. So, like, let's say, for instance, the Secrets people buy, like myself, I'll buy 50 cardinals or 100 cardinals. They, they want people just to take and catch 30, not grab 100 if you're only doing a 50 lot. They don't, they don't want that net touching the fish any more than they have to. So if you're, if you're if they're scooping out 100 fish, they'll do three scoops of 30 or whatever they can just to reduce the stress on the fish. You know, that's what people in, for instance, like pet stores should, should uh, really take into consideration that when they're catching fish for people, I know I find myself guilty of it when I'm chasing goldfish for somebody, especially feeders, and they want, you know, th- 30 feeders in my first scoop, I got 100. I want that one, Mom. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I hated that. Yeah, I still do. <laughs> But, you know, every little bit helps, and, and that's incredible that uh, you guys have considered that and put that into practice. Right at the point of capture, right there, it makes such a difference, such a little thing. And as hobbyists, we know that. And when hobbyists are saying, well, why should I buy, you know, a wild fish over, over a fish that's been farmed in Singapore? There's going to be dozens of reasons why, and we're going to have it down to the minutia, like all of the fishers in this co-op that we set up, they're all trained, and the, the fish don't leave the water, and they don't contact anything anything physical. But yeah, it's important. Yeah, I mean, just even looking at uh, when people, just the average hobbyist, when you're buying a net, you want to buy the softest net you can get. Um, I use a white net that I really liked. It's almost like a cloth. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you take wasn't that, that your g-string? No, that was not my. G-string. <laughs> okay, never mind. But I mean, if you if you take a, a one of those uh, green nets and you rub it on your face, I mean, it's it's kind of mildly abrasive, and that's the same thing yeah. on the fish. Or if you, and so that's when I purchase nets, I always grab the nets and always kind of feel them for it for the softest net I can find. Now I know why you buy your nets alone. What? <laughs> you people are all too strange well, for me. Well, Scott, I really appreciate the in-depth detail that we went uh, with this. It really shows really your passion to this, educates everyone that I'm just blown away that, you know, wild caught is the way to go. I'm just, it's been a habit. It's been what I've been raised with. I have, uh, I was raised into aquariums from my grandmother and it was always written in the books to, I literally have her handwritten notes in, in the old Axelrod books to uh, stay away from Wildcott. These are the reasons yeah. why, notes to me. And it just changes the game. And it, without yeah. uh, this type of education out there, it's, uh, it's hard to do. And clearly you guys yeah. got uh, a lot of plans going forward. If there's any way yeah. um, we can help, certainly let us know. And go to projectpiaba.org. It'll be in the show notes. And consider donating a, a little money so they can jumpstart these aquarium kits, jumpstart marketing material. Go on to uh, getting us those Roseline sharks. Yes, we'll keep moving. Last notes here? Yeah, just uh, buy a fish, save a tree, everybody. Buy fish, save a tree. Best marketing ever. Well, thanks Thanks again, Scott. And next week, I'm actually going to be traveling to West Virginia, and Uh hopefully, we'll be able to have a podcast remote for all three of our uh, three of us here. I'm going to have Jimmy uh, come into the studio and alone see if he can handle it. It's going to be like throwing glitter in a fan. It's going to be great. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, then we get to talk about uh, the prank that I did to you while you were gone that we didn't talk about today. And then two weeks from now, we'll talk about what happened to you when you got back home. Love you too. Yeah, long time. (laughs) All right, thanks again. All right, take care. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Let's kick that outro. Thanks a lot, Scott. Thanks, guys, for listening to this podcast. Please visit us at AquariumGuysPodcast.com and listen to us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. We're practically everywhere. We're on Google. I mean, just go to your favorite place, Pocket Casts. 
subscribed. Make sure it gets push notifications directly to your phone. Otherwise, Jim will be crying into sleep. Can, can I listen to it in the in my treehouse? In your treehouse, in your fish room, even alone at work. What about at my man cave? Especially your man cave. Yeah. Only if Adam's there. No. With feeder guppies. No. no. They're endlers. You midget loving sucking motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we'll see you next time. <laughs> Later.